Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu, and what I'm going to condense this time round is the history in... And believe me, there is actually history in Big Trouble in Little China. Now, this film is a guilty pleasure, and if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's, you can get it on something like Amazon Prime. You could probably buy the DVD off Amazon for like less than a fiver. But it's hokey B-movie stuff. And if you know what I'm talking about, you'll probably be sitting there going, really, Jem, really? Is there really actually some history in there? And, and I'm going to turn around and say, yeah, yeah, there is. So I'm going to be talking about all kinds of things. I am going to be talking about cultural appropriation. Have to. I'll be talking about the immigrant experience in the West. I'm going to be talking about a secret organization from China, a real one. And I'm also going to be talking about some early video game history, too. All of this wrapped up in this big pop bubblegum wrapper that is Big Trouble in Little China. So if you don't know what this film is, it came out in the mid-1980s. I won't say the name again, but it stars Kurt Russell and it's directed by John Carpenter. Now, John Carpenter, we mentioned before in our Halloween episode because he was the creator and director of the Halloween movie. And indeed, John Carpenter has made a big career in making relatively low budget horror movies. Some other examples, there is the classic The Thing, which was actually a remake from a 1950s film called The Thing from Outer Space. If you haven't seen The Thing starring, oh look, there's Kurt Russell again in the Arctic station with this alien parasite, that still is really terrifying and gruesome, even though it is sort of 40 years old, give or take. Then there's They Live. That came out a few years after Big Trouble in Little China. That's kind of a an analogy of, again, sort of like alien invasion, but also a condemnation on consumerism. He actually did the Stephen King movie, Christine. It's that car. I swear it's the car. You know, the one about the killer car. And then there's The Fog as well. But he also did some different things as well. He did a sort of TV movie with... Kurt Russell called Elvis about Elvis's life. Then there was also 
Escape from New York and later on Escape from L.A. Again, both with Kurt Russell on this one. So Kurt Russell's actually worked a fair bit with John Carpenter. Believe me, they both worked with lots of other people as well. But John Carpenter, look, not each one of these films I've mentioned were big hits. Some of them actually lost money, but they all gained cult status. Indeed, Big Trouble in Little China is an example of a film that actually bombed at the box office. It found its love on videotape and then later DVD and late night watching. Indeed, I was one of those kids. But I remember when it sort of first came out, it just excited people. The few people who went to see it, I mean, I, I remember working as a kid, my parents had a delicatessen and a stall in Portobello Market, and I used to work on that. And just, I remember this one guy talking so enthusiastically about this film. He sort of thought, oh, you know, maybe I could learn these martial arts. And even as a kid, I was going, pretty sure some of this stuff's going to be special effects. I'm pretty sure this isn't all real. And indeed, when I went to finally watch it, how anybody could think that the, any of this has any kind of historical accuracy or setting... Oh boy. Now, I, I don't want to give away too much on this, but John Carpenter can quite often be quite subversive. So actually, the central character is Dennis Dunn's character called Wang Chi. I think you can guess from those names, he is not a Caucasian American. Yes, he's of, sort of Chinese ancestry, and he plays a Chinese man who's living in San Francisco in Chinatown. This is gonna take Cracker Jack timing, Wang. Total concentration. You ready, Jack? I was born ready. And Kurt Russell turns up. He's this truck driver. He's this all-American lug, musclehead. Heart's in the right place, full of passion and ego and bravery. You remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Lacking on the brain side of things. He's kind of like... Indiana Jones, if Indiana Jones didn't go to university. This is clearly what it's riffing on, but Indiana Jones is also sort of riffing on those kind of B-movies, so Saturday matinee things in cinemas in the 1930s. It's, it's white hat versus black hat, the, the classic Western thing. And indeed, fun fact, Big Trouble in Little China was actually originally written in, during the Western era, and it kind of got updated. So the basic premise is this. Wang Chi, he's got the love of his life and she's coming over from China and he's waiting for her at the airport. And in the meantime, Kurt Russell's with him, just sort of helping him out a bit because he owes him money. And suddenly the girl gets kidnapped. At the same time, we also bump into Kim Cattrall's character. Yeah, Kim Cattrall from Sex and the City. Yeah, she's in it. It's worth remembering in her sort of 20s, in her early years, in the, in the early 1980s, she was in quite a few sort of marginal hits. Things like Porky's, which was a big sort of like bawdy college comedy thing from the very early 80s. She was in that. Um, she was in this. She was in, in Mannequin as well. So she was in all kinds of things. But whereas, first of all, a lot of people don't realise is she's actually British. She's lived in America for a long old time. And the rumour is they are bringing back Sex and the City, but Kim Cattrall's not in it. She, Miranda's not in it. Why is that? Because she's actually a very down-to-earth woman and she just found the other women sort of very New York and kind of pretentious and she's sort of fed up with that. When Sex and the City was actually finished, the first thing she did, she actually did a tea commercial in Britain. Now, she could have gone on and done anything, but she sort of was going back to her roots. And while Big Trouble in Little China was being made, she had to leave set 
every day at 4.30 because she was actually in a version of Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters. And she said at the time, she goes, look, my first love is theatre, but if all I did was theatre, I would also be a waitress. So my film career pays for my theatrical career. So she quite possibly is the best actor in the whole film. Look, I love Kurt Russell, and he's been in some cracking movies over the years, but people don't remember him as an amazing actor. In this, he's sort of all attitude, this sort of gung-ho swagger, and he does it better than probably anybody else, so he brings that to the table. I, I love Kurt Russell, but I'm going to argue that Kim Cattrall's actually a better actor. Anyway, so... This kidnapping happens, there's two sort of rival gangs in Chinatown, it's the Changji versus the Wing Kong, and there's even a ridiculous shootout during a funeral procession, and Kurt Russell's getting in the middle of all this, and it turns out that there's going to be this ancient baddie coming from the grave, and he needs both Kim Cattrall and also Dennis's or, or Wing Chi's girlfriend to be resurrected properly, and it all gets very silly. And to aid the big bad, you also have the three storms. These are three elemental powers, three genuine martial artists, by the way, and they do amazing martial arts. They're sort of dressed in robes, but the really distinctive thing is they have these really huge sort of, I'm going to say straw hats. That's not really doing it justice. The hat actually goes over their face. It's kind of like a weird straw wicker kind of mask, hood, hat combo. It looks pretty impressive. And they fire electricity out their hands and they can do huge kicks and they can blow open roofs. The budget on this was about 25 million, which even in the mid 1980s was not a huge budget. And you can see the kind of made at home papier mache type monster stuff that happens at times, as it happens in a number of John Carpenter movies. But let me put it this way. If you're looking for an Oscar winning movie, this ain't it. If you just want to put something on that puts a big fat smile on your face as you're eating a hamburger just on a Saturday evening or Saturday afternoon, that's what this is trying to do, okay? Nobody is trying to make high art here, and that's fine by me. So that, if you like, is the basic, basic plot <laughs> of Big Trouble in Little China. Now, the first thing I'm actually going to do is, stripping all this away, we are all aware of Chinatowns. There's one in LA, San Francisco, New York, London. There are these sort of concentrations of immigrants. Now, Jem Daduchu, I think you can guess by that, my name isn't exactly Anglo-Saxon. And you can tell from my accent, I'm clearly British. So what's his background? Well, I don't want to go too much into it, but my mother is American and my father is Turkish. And so weirdly, kind of counterintuitively, while technically both of them were immigrants, obviously Americans and Brits might be different, but they can speak the same language and there's quite a lot of cultural similarities. So they ended up getting married and staying together in West London, far away from either big American communities or big, big Turkish communities. But my father's sister, i.e. my aunt, she got married to a Turk in Germany. And indeed, in Germany, pretty much the biggest minority in Germany are Turks. They're sort of seen as like the Asian community in Britain. Something like that would be a comparison. And I would remember going to visits to my aunt and uncle's place just outside of Frankfurt, a place called Klingenberg. And when we arrived there, 
they watch Turkish TV. They talk Turkish in their house. This is problematic for me because I can't actually speak Turkish. Turkish food was prepared. Basically, this was Turkey, just happens to be in Germany. And it reminded me of that. There was a movie that came out nearly 20 years ago called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now, Greeks and Turks do not get on, and indeed one of the jokes running gags in that movie is the grandmother is always obsessed with Turkish attack. There, there's a long history there, I'm not going to go into it. But if you like, My Big Fat Greek Wedding was such a huge hit, not because there are Greeks everywhere, but because what they were describing is you could almost take out the Greek bit and you could insert Indian, Turkish, Chinese, whatever, because Hearing my father growing up, the greatest place on earth was Turkey. Turkey had won every war except World War I, but that's because the other sides cheated. I'm, I'm not making this up, by the way. That's what he literally said. Didn't realize there were that many strict rules, rules when fighting a world war. But anyway, you get this in my big fat Greek wedding as well. The patriarch is very much set in his ways. He's from another era, a bit like my dad. And... He gets very frustrated because nobody listens to him because he imagines that a hundred years ago everybody listened to the, the patriarch of the family. And, you know, everything Greek in my Big Fat Greek rating is good. Everything else is a bit simple and stupid. The history is the most awesome, yada, yada, yada. And things are exaggerated for effect. But there is a reason for this. And like I say, I've, I've seen this firsthand only with Turks. So the reality is if you're coming into a strange country as immigrants, it's pretty darn scary. And if you are the one and only person of your type surrounded in an island by other people, and I mean other in inverted commas, and this is where I get sort of incredibly proud of my parents that, you know, my dad really couldn't have stepped as far away as possible from his comfort zone and married somebody outside of his own group as well. And I ended up being created. So thanks very much, parents. And so when I compared it to my, my aunt and uncle, well, my cousin, obviously the daughter of my aunt and uncle, she grew up perfectly speaking both Turkish and German, and she got to the equivalent of GCSE English, so at least we could talk a little bit together. But my aunt, she spent 35 years in Germany and never learnt proper German, which my father would argue with her about. His argument was basically, you're in this country, you should learn its language. And you know what? I agree with that. I, I know this is uncomfortable if you're a white Westerner from your own country, sort of saying to people, you should learn our language can sound pretty xenophobic. But I think it's a valid point. If you are coming to a country because you're hoping for a better life, then of course you're going to bring some of your old ways with you. But that does not mean that you should ignore all the ways of, the, of your host country, because if it's that rubbish, then yeah, why are you there? So the very least you can do is learn please, thank you, and how much for six eggs or something like that in German or English or whatever. How much for six eggs? Wie viel für sechs Eier? So I, I don't think that's an unreasonable request. It's not being xenophobic, just as, you know, people have a problem during imperial eras when people refuse to learn the languages of the areas they were running. That's the same argument. If one's wrong, both are wrong. But anyway, let's not get too bogged down on that. So you do get these little cultural groups clumping together. And if you like, a very noticeable one is the Chinese community in many different countries. There is one last thing to be said about this sort of immigrant experience, which again, I've witnessed myself firsthand with parts of the family. And that is when people leave the country, 
it's almost like the experience, the culture gets time-locked. Going back to my my aunt, while she was watching modern-day Turkish news on TV, so she was seeing how the country evolved, if you like, her language, her slang, same with my father, was set in the 1960s, which is when they basically left the country. So I actually witnessed firsthand with my father talking to a young Turk. The young Turk sort of looked at him quizzically at times because he was using slang, which would be the equivalent of me using saying something like groovy. Yeah, I understand what it is, but I also understand it. Nobody uses it anymore. And it's, it, it just tells me that you've picked this up from a very old book, haven't you? So um, the, the thing about, about it is these people come from the old country, wherever that may be. And it's almost sad at that point because as they, as they grow their kids up and start talking to the kids about the old country, maybe we go back a couple of times, but things change. And so it's almost unrecognizable that by the time I grew up and went to Turkey, the Turkey that my father had experienced just barely wasn't there anymore. I remember as a very young kid, certain things that he also remembered, but I know for a fact that those things have gone. For example, in his local town, which is now a pretty large city, they, when I was a very little kid, we knew it was milk time because the guy on the donkey arrived with two huge cauldrons of, I'm presuming, unpasteurized milk. Nowadays, they have supermarkets in Turkey, okay? But that's the thing, you know, so... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. People love their old country. They sort of harken back to their old country. They, they talk about the history and culture of the old country, but the old country itself moves on. And in the modern world, things have become homogenized. You know, you can get Starbucks in Russia and China. And, and, and so, you know, it's very hard to find a truly unique local experience at times, particularly in capital cities of countries.
So I just wanted to put that out there as well. If you like, once you leave the country, you never get to go back to quite the same country. Now, I, I just want to finish off with, with this section, if you like, about immigration by talking a little bit, you know, China and America do not have a common border. How did they get there? Well, the answer is that basically China has always had a huge amount of manpower available. And America was a growing country that needed some cheap labor. Now, some of that was fixed with slavery, but after the American Civil War, there weren't slaves anymore. So while an awful lot of ex-slaves did end up working on the American railroads, there were a lot of what were known as coolies, which were basically Chinese workmen working on the American transcontinental railways. It is a strange, bizarre fact that literally thousands of Chinese men helped to build a modern America. It, it's true. Don't believe me. Check it out. And, and so where did they come in? They tended to come in from the West, places like San Francisco. So the fact that there is a Chinatown in San Francisco is kind of unsurprising. And lo and behold, that's where big trouble in little China is set. But when you have these groups all living together cheek by jowl, then obviously, yes, you get the marvellous restaurants. But there absolutely is a dark side to that, too, which bizarrely is also in big trouble in Little China. Now, you may recall that I mentioned earlier that there was a ridiculous shootout at a funeral in this movie. And this is because there were two warring factions in Chinatown called the Changjin and the Wing Kong. Now, I think it is worth pointing out that a lot of these words sound kind of Chinese, but the reality is, you know, a lot of this stuff was just written by Caucasian screenwriters because, hey, it sounds kind of Chinese. So we have to be careful with this. I'll come on to the cultural appropriation in a little bit. But actually, this has precedence, real historical precedence, because in particularly in New York, round about 1900, there was a Chinatown there, and there were two groups. There were the Hip Sing Tong and the On Leong. These two groups originally started as, well, in, in America, they started as labor unions. Basically, with all these Chinese workers going out there, and indeed there's a, a phrase again, another phrase associated with China, you get a Chinese laundry. Now, again, this is sort of a problematic phrase, but this comes from the fact that a lot of manual tasks and basic cleaning were done by Chinese communities in America in the early 20th century. So there were literally lots of big, steamy, you know, th th these were not pleasant places to work, but when the Chinese people are kind of there, sometimes illegally, sometimes through these labor union movements which could force you to work there, you can see how this stuff can start getting corrupted. So these movements were there and there were literally thousands of Chinese people doing various jobs around the city or indeed working in the railroads, etc. So that's how they kind of started, but they started evolving. As I said, you know, a bit of corruption there, you know, a bit of importing, sex trafficking, things like that. These things existed. And so these two groups started to vie against each other, and basically it turned into a turf war. If you like, and I mentioned this with the name of one of them, Hip Sing Tong, Tongs is a name associated with in essence, the Chinese Mafia. 
criminal organizations designed betting, drug trafficking, prostitution, gambling, etc. All these sorts of things can be accompanied with violence and violence spilled out onto the streets of New York in the early 1900s between these two rival gangs. And it didn't really stop for a long, long time. Going back briefly to my father, I said owned a delicatessen and he would sell wholesale things like cheese and bacon and stuff like that. And one of the areas he actually did quite good traffic on was a business on was duck eggs. Now, duck eggs are quite important to Chinese restaurants. So he did a roaring trade with Chinese restaurants uh, all over London. And then it occurred to him, well, surely the place I should be going to is Chinatown in London. And this is a true story. He sat down with one group and talked to them and they, they liked the quality of the duck eggs. They liked the price. And then they said, uh, my father said, so do we have a deal? Went, oh, no, you have to talk to the tongs as well. At which point my father went, no, no, not doing that. Have a nice day. You know, I think it, he's just a local businessman. He didn't want to in any way get involved with criminal organizations. That's a story from 1980s Britain. So make no mistake that the Tongs are still around today. Now, if you like, a lot of their power was broken in America in the 1990s when an awful lot of various endeavors were put against them. In the 1980s in New York, that was the time when the Justice Department and the police really cracked down hard on the five families of the New York Mafia. 1990s, it was basically the Tong's turn. And so I'm not saying these people have gone away, but if you like, their, their heyday is over. I can't talk about London. I don't know the facts on that one. But if you consider that narcotics were being brought in by the Tongs in New York from the 1930s onwards, I mean, really, so consumption of drugs in America really only started to take hold in the late 1960s reaching a peak in the late 80s, early 90s with the crack cocaine epidemic. So this was a time where these people were invariably involved in it in one way or another. Suddenly they're having to deal with other countries as well, like Bolivia, for example. Not going to go into all that stuff, trying to keep my clean rating here. But the point is, the Tongs and the rivalry, bizarrely, they were onto something in big trouble in Little China. I know how weird that sounds. Do you know what? Let's go into a bit of cultural appropriation next. Because, as I said, they've just smashed together anything that looked vaguely Chinese slash Southeast Asian and just put it into this movie. And that is obviously problematic. The clothing towards the end, I, I don't want to give too much away from this film, but if you can't work out that the good guys are going to win in this film, then you really need to sort of look at yourself in the mirror on that one. But anyway, I don't want to to go into this too much, but at one point, Kim Cattrall, who is a blonde-haired woman who comes from England, but most people think is American, she is dressed up to look very Chinese. It, there is a reason for this in the plot. They are not trying to pass her off as Chinese, but it's one of these things that, to a modern viewer, is a little uncomfortable. And I'm not entirely sure it is cultural appropriation. I do remember, I mean, this is the thing, people talk about cancel culture, and I think we have to be careful. Nobody is in charge 
of cancelling people, okay? It's just sort of an outcry. And sometimes it's an outcry against legitimate problems, and other times people are just trying to just whip up a storm. And do you know what? People are allowed to have different opinions to you. Now, they're not allowed to break the law or be sort of rude or aggressive or threatening. But if somebody happens to vote for another person that you don't like, that's no reason to cancel them, okay? So, anyway, that to one side. I do remember, and, you know, I think there's some very valid points. There are the the dream catchers, these sort of web-like string designs that Native Americans have created. And... They are beautiful, but they are sold so often in all these alternative medicine crystal type shops that people have said that's cultural appropriation. It is part of a spiritual process in another culture that you're now sort of selling as a cheap knockoff and people don't get its cultural significance. I guess it would be the equivalent of somebody buying, I don't know, a crucifix and then, I don't know, using it to prop up the toilet seat because that is clearly showing no respect to the Christian faith, for example. Relics, we've got shrouds from uh, Turin. Uh, wine from the wedding at Cana. Splinters from the cross. And of course there's uh, stuff made by Jesus in his days in the carpentry shop. So I get the point that if people are just grabbing bits of other people's culture and then misusing them or misappropriating them, that is wrong. And, and we absolutely need to have a conversation about this. But there was this one girl online who was going to her prom. She was Caucasian and she was wearing a silk Chinese style dress. And she looked very pretty in it and just got pillared by everybody. And I think something like that is wrong. The dress itself is not something of like Buddhist robes. It has no re religious significance. Yes, it's something that is worn by pe people from another country. That doesn't mean that you're not allowed to wear it. And if you are going to go down this route, I think you have to be a little bit careful because cotton was invented in Egypt or first created and, and produced in Egypt. So are you culturally appropriating Egyptian culture every time you put on cotton? I'm going to say no on that one. So it's just a dress. So while she is dressed up to look Asian, it's not the worst crime in this. Indeed, what I want to do now is actually go to the, the Three Storms. The Three Storms, just to remind you, are these three martial artists, these three, three supernatural entities. In, in essence, they're the problem that needs to be fixed in the story because that's how all good stories are told you know if there isn't a barrier stopping the hero from getting somewhere it's not a very satisfying story half the fun is seeing how they're going to get through that barrier well in this one they got three barriers and i'm not going to tell you how they do it but the point is as i said they're sort of like doing all these martial arts they've got these huge straw hat mask things on and also at certain points they bring out these curved daggers and that's a real problem because those are clearly kukris. Now, kukris are Nepalese. They're, they're held by the Gurkhas. And the Gurkhas have got nothing to do with Chinese martial arts. So that's a different type of cultural appropriation. Is it cool? Yes. But I just want to briefly talk about the amazing thing about the, the cookeries. For starters, they've been part of Nepalese culture since the 7th century AD. They've been used and are still used since the early era of the Anglo-Saxons in England. You know, that's an amazing fact. 
and they they are curved and there are sort of there are a few subtle differences to them and basically almost all adult men in Nepal will carry one of these so unsurprisingly the Gurkhas you might have heard of is the basically the military people the soldiers that come from Nepal and still fight in the British army to give you an idea, during the British imperial expansion into India, they eventually went into Nepal. And this was an interesting side of colonialism and imperialism because both sides fought so hard. It's a little bit like what happened with the Sikhs, but both sides fought so hard that they created a mutual respect. From the Nepalese, they couldn't believe that these silly Englishmen were marching up mountains in completely inadequate equipment, wearing wooden shoes, and yet could still fight hard when they got to the top of the mountain. Meanwhile, the British were very impressed with how hard the Nepalese were fighting as well. So it's a classic example of you can't beat them, join them. I'm not saying that the British didn't ultimately win the wars, but they, they didn't then crush the locals. They allowed them to start joining the army. If these guys are tough to fight, imagine what they're like on our side. Uh, for further information, like I said, Sikhs and Scotsmen too. These are all great people to have in your army. So with that in mind, they are still part of the British forces. And multiple Gurkhas have won Victoria Crosses, multiple Gurkhas have joined special forces, things like the SAS, and pretty much anybody who has ever fought alongside them have said they're absolutely the guys you want to fight alongside. And yet the irony is, Nepal is a very long way away from Britain. Nobody's forcing these people to join British forces but they still want to, it's become part of their culture. So to therefore have these sort of, sort of Chinese warrior gods waving them around is I'm gonna say fairly offensive to the, the people of Nepal. So there's cultural appropriation going on everywhere here. <laughs> So sorry about this. So with that in mind, I then wanted to come on to the point about video games. Haven't forgotten it. I'm going to do that in a moment. But as I always say, look, please give this podcast a review. Please tell somebody else about it. Let's spread the love a little bit. And please, please, if you could reach out to me on Twitter, just I'm at, at Jem Daducci on Twitter. It'd be great to hear from you, great to hear your thoughts on these things. Have you ever seen Big Trouble in Little China? What do you think? Are you amazed that after watching that pop bu bubblegum movie, I could have extracted some kind of history from it, but here I am doing it right now. So look, I've been talking about daggers that are 1,300 years old. I've been talking about secret Chinese organizations that are over a century old. I've been talking about the immigration experience, which again goes back centuries. So there's been a lot talking about it, but let's bring it a little more up to date because I couldn't help but notice I didn't see it, as I said, when it came out in the cinema, I caught it on video many years later. And by then I, th I thought, hmm, is, is that a thing? And it turns out it's actually been mentioned that yes, see these three storms with their electricity and these large hats and their martial arts. If this sounds vaguely familiar to you in the realms of video games, the character of Raiden from Mortal Kombat is actually based on the three storms. 
He's not based on lots of other things. You know, there's other people who are clearly based on people like Jean-Claude Van Damme or Bruce Lee. You know, there are lots of things that are being based in the original fighting games, be they Street Fighter, be they Mortal Kombat or Tekken or whatever, where they've clearly gone back to other things and, and drawn from them. But interestingly, there was clearly a few people on the Mortal Kombat team that liked Big Trouble in Little China, that they wanted to immortalize it in their own way, which I think is lovely. Just one brief thing on Mortal Kombat. It is interesting that it, for a long time it was considered Mortal Kombat was turned into a video game. And, well, obviously turned into a video game, but then that video game was turned into a movie. And it's well known as having one of the best songs in it ever for a video game. I am hoping now that Greg will cut to the shouty bit of that. And the other thing it was, was considered the best video game movie made. Now, that's not to say it's a great film. It's not up there with The Godfather, but there've been so many terrible, terrible, terrible video game movies. I'm looking at you like Mario Brothers, for example. Mamma mia! But this one was passable. It was an okay fantasy martial arts movie with a very good theme tune. It then had a sequel which was abysmal in every possible way and reminded everybody how bad video game movies were. But in 2021, there is a new Mortal Kombat movie coming out, which does seem to be leaning heavily into the violence, but also by people who clearly have actually played and enjoyed the video game. So there you go, Mortal Kombat's still around as, as a film franchise, which I find interesting to, to say as well. So look, guys, really hope that you've enjoyed that one. As always, there'll be another podcast coming out soon, but in the meantime, stay safe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.